And uh, I appreciate the preacher study and appreciate all the work that is done to uh, keep it in operation. I'm thankful to Richard and Ron for asking me to speak. And for the last few years, I have been working through Romans 9 through 11, and we have reached uh, the first part of Romans chapter 11. I had hoped to cover 16 verses, but we're not going to make that. I'm going to be merciful to you. So uh, let's get started. The overarching point of Romans 9 through 11 is that God is faithful. He keeps his promises and his word can be trusted. In chapter 9, Paul explains that Israel, by and large, stands rejected because she misunderstood two doctrines. The doctrine of the election of Israel and the doctrine of God's sovereignty. In the first, God's choice of Israel as his special people was an election to service and not to salvation. Israel as a nation was chosen by God to serve him in the accomplishment of his foreordained plan to bring the Savior into the world. This choice was national and unconditional. Salvation has never been a national matter. It is an individual matter. It always has been and it is conditional. The second misunderstanding was about God's absolute sovereignty. He is not answerable to man. Israel questions God's right to reject them, but God extends his mercy to whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will, chapter 9, verse 18. Being God, and therefore absolutely moral and absolutely merciful, he is not capricious in his actions toward men. Nevertheless, he alone is the one who is sovereign. In the closing verses of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, Paul reveals that most Israelites stand rejected because they have refused to submit to God's plan for redeeming man. Choosing rather to rest in their uh, supposed position of privilege and merit, most of the Jews have failed to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and have elected to attempt to establish their own righteousness <coughs> excuse me, on the basis of the law of Moses. As a result, the picture painted thus far is pretty bleak for Israel. Most of the Jews stand before God accursed, 9.3. They have in fact prepared themselves for destruction, 9.22. And though they have followed after the law of righteousness, they have not attained it, 9.31. Consequently, they remain woefully or willfully ignorant of God's righteousness, 10.3 and they are by and large a disobedient and obstinate people, 1021. To Israel's chagrin, the Gentiles are being welcomed into God's kingdom with open arms. In fact, they are the subject of God's mercy, 923 and 24. While astounding to the blind in Israel, God's acceptance of the Gentiles was fully predicted by the prophets in 925 and 26. The Gentiles, who were not even seeking righteousness, have found it, 929, and this situation, as incredible as it seems, is exactly according to God's pattern. Naturally, the question arises in the mind of Jewish objectors, has God cast away his people? 
Is Israel irredeemably lost? Has God given up entirely on the Jews and turned to the Gentiles? The answer is no. God wants as many Jews to be saved as possible, even all of them, 1126. To that end, therefore, Paul addresses here God's desire to save Israel and the means by which he plans to do so. Paul's argument involves intricate interrelationships between Jews and Gentiles, which are designed for the blessing and salvation of both. The question under consideration in chapter 11 is different from the one in chapter 9. There, the question revolved around the establishment of God's faithfulness to his promise for national Israel, promises for national Israel. In chapter 11, the focus is not on God's Old Testament purpose for Israel because Jesus has now come. It is instead aimed at God's place for individual Jews living under the New Testament dispensation. Salvation and eternal destiny are the subjects of prominence now in chapter 11 rather than service. What is God's plan for Israel or for Jews with regard to salvation in the Christian age? God no longer plans to deal with Israel as a nation as he did in Old Testament times. He will no longer use Israel for service. Those covenant relations were fulfilled when Jesus came. God is now dealing with Jews as individuals. In the New Testament age, he is gathering together the remnant, the new Israel or spiritual Israel, which is in fact made up of both Jews and Gentiles, those who believe and obey the gospel. Paul's argument in chapter 11 breaks into six sections. 11, 1 to 6, uh, in these first six verses, he explains that God's true Israel is the remnant chosen by grace. He says first that God has not rejected his people, verses 1 and 2a. And next he points out that God has a remnant of believers in the Old Testament 2b through 4. And then he states that those under grace are God's new covenant people, the new Israel, verses 5 and 6. In section 2, Paul reveals that unbelieving Israel has been hardened. That's as far as we'll get today. But in, in the third section, he explains that the hardening of unbelieving Israel becomes a blessing for both Jews and Gentiles. In section 4, Paul introduces the olive tree figure, which is a metaphor of both judgment and hope. In it, he warns Gentile believers not to become proud of themselves lest they fall after the same example of unbelief as the Jews, verses 17 to 22, and he then expresses hope for those hardened Jews, verses 23 and 24. In section 5, Paul presents God's plan for Israel's salvation, and he establishes three points. The mystery of Israel's salvation, verses 25 through 27, God's continuing love for Israel, 28 and 29, and God's ultimate purpose of mercy, verses 30 to 32. In verses 33 to 36, the final section, Paul declares that God is right. 
overawed by God's wisdom and mercy and faithfulness, he closes with a hymn of praise to Almighty God, a doxology of glorifying God. And this, at the end of chapter 11, returns the believer to where he was at the end of chapter 8. So God's true Israel is the remnant chosen by grace. So the first part is uh, in verse 1 and 2a. Uh, Paul's I say then introduces the third in a series of questions uh, that he anticipates from his typical representative objector Pharisee. And the first two in this series are in 10 and 18 and 10 and 19. The question arises naturally from what has been argued previously in chapters 9 and 10 and summarizes the upshot thus far according to Paul's objector. Has God cast away his people? To Paul's anticipated objector, the notion of Israel's rejection is absolutely unthinkable. After all, God chooses Israel as his special people from the days of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1-3. He restates his choice to them at Sinai in the presence of Moses, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. In Isaiah, God describes Israel as my people, my chosen, chapter 43 and verse 20, 21. God promises the people of Jeremiah's day, I will be your God and you shall be my people, Jeremiah 7, 23, uh, taken from Leviticus 26 and verse 12. What has been conveniently forgotten by Paul's typical Pharisee critic, however, is that God's promises to Israel relative to their salvation were repeatedly conditioned on faithful obedience. In Exodus 19 and 5 again, now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Leviticus 26 and 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then, and on a host of uh, conditions. A host of other passages give the same uh, testimony. But note carefully how Paul frames his objector's question. Has God cast away his people? Who are God's people? Already Paul has hinted that there are actually two Israels. In fact, there is ethnic or national Israel, and there is spiritual Israel or God's remnant. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, chapter 9, verse 6. This statement is true physically, chapter 9, 7 to 13, and it is also true spiritually or in terms of individual salvation, chapter 9, verses 22 through 29. Who are God's people in this verse, 11 and 1? It does not make sense for the reference here to be Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation was chosen for a service 
and with the bringing of Christ into the world, she completed her work and she was honorably retired from her service. Romans 10.12, Galatians 3.28, and Colossians 3.11. Therefore, his people refers to the Jewish part of the remnant. We note this because properly the remnant includes both Jews and Gentiles, or all and every nation who fear God and work righteousness, believing in Jesus Christ, Acts 10, 34 and 35, also Romans 9, 23 and 24. And also because it is important to note that in this chapter, Paul is referring primarily to ethnic Jews as individuals who are God's people. His remnant among the Jews or who might, or those who might uh, want to become part of the faithful uh, remnant. So, God has cast away, so has God cast away his people? Paul repudiates such a notion, recoiling with horror in the most emphatic terms. Certainly not. The fact is, God did not reject any Jews at all until after most of Israel rejected God, 11 verse 11. When the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem, most of the Jews reject its call, and throughout their checkered history, most Jews refused to become part of God's faithful remnant. Earlier, Paul has already established that God has not rejected all of the Jews from salvation. Again, 9, 23 and 24, 27 to 29, chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. He seeks here to magnify God's faithfulness by reiterating with additional evidence that there is a faithful remnant. Any repentant Jew who so desires may yet join their number, that is, of the remnant, by believing in Jesus, obeying the gospel, and remaining faithful thereto. In the second part of verse 1, he says, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul thoroughly identifies himself as a Jew in order to give living proof that God has not rejected the faithful uh, among the Jews who are his people. He emphasizes his physical Jewishness. He is an Israelite, 9-4. He is himself a physical descendant of Abraham, 2 Corinthians 11.22. He is not a proselyte. Furthermore, he is of the tribe of Benjamin, the first tribe of royalty, and one of only two of the original tribes who remained uh, loyal throughout the Old Testament. It was one of only two tribes to return from captivity, to be restored to their homeland and that remained intact into New Testament times, Philippians 3 verse 5. Paul's pedigree as a Jew is beyond question. As Pendleton suggests, Paul uses himself as an example to show that God has not cast away his people in mass and without discrimination or distinction 
the totality of his ancient people, for he himself, Paul, is a living denial of such a conclusion. So the first part of verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Paul emphatically answers his anticipated question in the negative and gives his answer even more emphasis by repeating the words of his typical Pharisee objector. Great controversy has long swirled around the qualifying phrase, whom he foreknew. Calvinists of every stripe believe that this foreknowledge is the same, identical with, as God's unconditional election or predestination. The problem that all Calvinist commentators have in common is an erroneous view of the meaning of foreknowledge. At the bottom of this screen, uh, this word proegno does not carry with its meaning any part of causation or predetermination. Laonidas says it means to know about something prior to some temporal reference point. For example, to know about an event before it happens. To know beforehand, to know already, to have foreknowledge. BDAG corroborates this definition. To foreknow something means to have prior cognitive or mental awareness. It does not mean to cause something to happen or to predestine. Paul's next example in verses 2b through 5 reveals that it is the remnant that is in focus. The overarching point is that God has not cast away his people, that is, the Jews who have obeyed the gospel, who believe in the Messiah, do not stand rejected. In fact, these are his people. No, God has not cast away his people. Instead, most of the Jews have rejected God. His true people, however, have always been represented by the faithful remnant in Israel. Furthermore, as we shall see, any Jew who so desires may cross over from unbelief to faith, from rejection to acceptance, from castaway to the faithful remnant. All that is required is an obedient faith in Jesus as the Messiah. That brings us to verses 2b through 4. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Literally, this reads in Elijah. This is an interesting minor point if you are inclined to ask later. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, and this is an unusual use of the verb makes intercession in tugkane. Uh, we usually think of making intercession or pleading on behalf of someone as a positive thing. But here Elijah is presented as appealing to God urgently and intensely, Laonida, against the people of his own nation. Elijah made such complaints because Israel had so completely followed Ahab and Jezebel in the idolatrous worship of Baal. 
And Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. Elijah is frustrated almost beyond words because of Ahab and Jezebel's successful introduction of Baal worship in Israel. Right on the heels of Elijah's euphoric victory over the prophets of Baal in the great debate on Mount Carmel, Elijah has, was plunged into the depths of despair because of Jezebel's threat against his life. As a result, he fled to a cave on Mount Horeb to hide. Therefore, there God asked him twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's reply, and I alone am left and they seek my life. Elijah's words sum up his perception of the religious crisis facing Israel at that time. God's prophets were certainly being killed on Jezebel's order, and the altars were being demolished. Elijah's lament that he was the only one left, even if he meant he was the only prophet still faithful, and not just the only one left of true believers in general, is almost certainly an exaggeration, reflecting more his mood of despair than the facts as he knew them. But what does the divine response say to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God did not say, as Calvinists suggest, in fact insist, that God had unconditionally elected and predestined these 7,000 in an eternal decree before the dawn of time. The record clearly indicates that the acceptance of these 7,000 was conditioned on their having chosen not to bow the knee to Baal. God is simply informing Elijah that he is not the only one who has been and remains faithful. These 7,000 constituted God's people at that time. They were the true Israel in that day, the faithful remnant, the rest belonged to Baal. God did not reject Israel, most of Israel rejected God. But God still counted those who sought him in faith as his own, Ezekiel chapter 18, particularly verses 25 to 32. Which brings us to verses 5 and 6. Even so, at this present time also, there is a remnant. Paul's reference to the remnant in Elijah's day is intended to convey two truths. There has always been a faithful remnant in Israel and the citation of the example from Elijah's day is intended to be analogous to the situation in Paul's day. Just as there was a faithful remnant in Israel then, there is a faithful remnant at the present time, that is when Paul wrote this letter. The faithful remnant in Paul's day refers to those Jews 
who obeyed the gospel and became Christians. God had rejected the whole Jewish system and would soon destroy what the government of Rome had so far left them. But he had not barred the door of salvation against any Jew that became obedient to the gospel of grace through faith in Christ. According to the election of grace, the passage says, anyone recognized by God as a part of the faithful remnant in any time came to be so because of God's choice or election on the basis of grace. The choice by God's grace is not, as the Calvinist claims, the result of an unconditional election conducted in eternity past. It is true that this election is according to the sovereign will of God, for, as was declared in chapter 9 verse 18, God has mercy on whomever he will have mercy, and he hardens whomever he wills. It is not true that God's will is either capricious or unconditional with respect to salvation. The question is not whether or not God extends mercy according to his will to whomever he wants to. He does. Nor is the question whether or not he hardens men according to his will. He does. The question is on whom does God confer his mercy? Or whom does he harden? And what are the conditions upon which God will extend his mercy or harden? God has chosen in his sovereignty to extend his grace to all Jews, any Jew, all Gentiles and any Gentile who would of their own free will choose to believe in his son, believe enough to forsake his own former life, her own former life, and yield in total compliance to the gospel of Christ 9, 23 and 24. The fact that God is willing to extend his mercy upon the condition of faith rather than on the demands of sinless obedience required by the law of Moses shows just how faithful he is to his word and his promises and his people. He is willing to save them in spite of their sins. Verse 6 starts, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. The faithful remnant of the Jews have all been saved on the basis of God's grace, God's free gift. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has effectively established that all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. R.L. Whiteside noted, listen now, no no amount of works can blot out sins already committed. Forgiveness 
is a matter of grace. No matter how many conditions one must fill in order to be forgiven. No Jew who has ever sinned, even if only one time, can be saved on the basis of meritorious work as the law of Moses in and of itself demands. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul's argument to those Jews standing outside of God's grace is that God has not cast away his people. To the contrary, many Jews have been saved and even now in Paul's day, there is a faithful remnant of the nation that has been saved by grace, but if salvation has come to them on the basis of grace, it cannot come on the basis of meritorious works of law. To so reason would take the grace, the unmerited favor or the gift out of grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In this passage, Paul summarizes the primary argument of the entire epistle. The only way a sinner can be saved is by grace through faith. No sinner can ever be justified by a system of law. Not natural law, not moral law, and not Moses' law. Law cannot take sinners and make them not lawbreakers. It is not in the province of law to forgive sin. It cannot justify a sinner. These two systems of salvation, salvation on the basis of meritorious law and salvation on the basis of grace through faith are mutually exclusive. One must either choose to pursue God's righteousness that comes by grace through faith, or he must pursue personal righteousness by sinless perfection and works of merit for his salvation. If he chooses the latter, he must rely on himself alone and never sin, not even once. If he chooses the righteousness of God offered in the gospel, he must trust in Jesus, obey the gospel, relying on God's grace to save him. The second section of the chapter, unbelieving Israel has been hardened. Verse 7 begins, what then? What is the upshot of what we have said thus far in verses 2 through 6? What shall we say next? What inference shall be we derive from this discussion about whether or not God has cast away his people whom he foreknew? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. Note the tension here between Israel and the elect. The elect refers to the remnant mentioned in verse 5. That is, those Jews since the day of Pentecost who have chosen of their own free will to accept and obey the gospel. Israel, by contrast, refers to the nation in general. That is, the vast majority of Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the gospel as God's power to save. 
It should be recognized, however, that Paul speaks in general as the aggregate of all individuals in Israel who are unbelieving Jews. In other words, they are the others or the rest of the next phrase. That is in contrast to the elect or the remnant. This is the same use of the term Israel that is found in 930 through 103. It's referring to all, in, listen, individual Jews. What was it that the majority of Israel were seeking but not finding? Romans 9.30 says it was righteousness. They were not finding it because they were seeking it on the wrong basis. They were seeking righteousness based upon their own merit derived from their own personal works. They did not seek it on the basis of faith. Consequently, they did not find it. The elect found it believing in Jesus and showing their faith by the obedience that faith produces James 2 14 through 26 and the rest were blinded first we need to recognize that blinded eporothason from purao literally means to harden or petrify but in the scriptures it is only used figuratively to mean to cause someone to have difficulty in understanding or comprehending to harden to petrify bedag. Lao and Nida add to cause someone to be completely unwilling to learn and to accept new information to cause the mind to be closed the rest were made completely unwilling to learn. You might also find something interesting on the etymology of the term in Sande and Hedlam. Clearly the idea is more that of being hardened than that of being blinded. Later in this chapter, Paul says that this hardening is not absolute, for if the Jews, that is any Jew or one or more, abide not in unbelief, they may yet be grafted back into God's olive tree, verses 23 and 25. By whom the unbelieving Jews were hardened is not made clear in this text. Sandy and Hedlam say the verb is a colorless passive, laying no stress on its cause. Some writers say the hardening uh, comes about through their own rejection, choosing rather to obey Satan rather than the grace of God, Don DeWelt, and this view is certainly biblically defensible according to several passages. Others say the blame, lay the blame directly on Satan, that would be Lard, McGarvey, Pendleton, and Godet, and this too is plausible and a defensible view. Contextually, however, it seems likely that God is the one primarily responsible for their hardening. He did, he did so not by an eternal decree in the distant eternity past, rather it happened to Israel gradually as it did to Pharaoh, discussed in chapter 9, verse 17 and 18, and Exodus chapters 3 through 12. As a result of their willful rejection of God in the face of overwhelming proof of God's love extended in the coming of Christ into the world, his sacrifice of himself upon the cross, and the preaching of the gospel confirmed by miraculous power, God hardened them. This divine hardening is not the cause of their rejection of the gospel. It is a punishment for it. 
It was retribution for their sin. It is a judicial penalty. They were hardened because they deserved it. Paul cites three passages from the Old Testament to sustain this point. Verse 8 uh, derives from Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. And... Uh, 9 and 10 derives from the Septuagint rendering of Psalm 69, 22, and 23. So verse 8. This citation here is drawn from two Old Testament passages as we mentioned and reinforces that this hardening of the Jews' hearts is from God. Just as with Pharaoh, God actively hardened Israel only after she had hardened her own heart herself. He did so by giving those individuals who rejected Jesus a spirit of stupor or a state of not being able to think satisfactorily because of complete bewilderment and stupor. God caused them to be completely bewildered or God made them unable to think Laonida. This word katanuxis comes from a word katanuso, which means to stun. Sometimes a person who has been struck on the head seems to be fully conscious, but mentally he is confused, bewildered, and unaware of his surroundings, unable to think clearly, and that's the idea here. Because of Israel's willful ignorance, God has responded by covering their spiritual eyes and deafening their spiritual ears. The concluding phrase of verse 8, unto this day, appears to be part of the citation from Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, but it may also express Paul's sentiment that the Jews are still fumbling under the same spiritual blindness and deafness that caused them to reject the Messiah and crucify him. It is important, however, to recognize that this condition is not necessarily permanent, and that's what verses 11 and 32 are about for another time. It may be counteracted in the heart of any Jew who comes to believe in Jesus enough to do his will. Whether such an event actually happens in the life of any single Jew or all of them remains to be seen. Which brings us to verses 9 and 10. These verses are cited from the Septuagint uh, rendering of Psalm 69, 22, and 23, which is widely recognized by the inspired writers of the New Testament as a messianic psalm. Listen, Psalm 69 is cited seven times in the New Testament. Matthew 27 in both 34 and 48, John 2, 17, John 15, 25, Acts 1 and 20, Romans 15 and 3, and this passage. The psalm is clearly messianic. It is also one of the troubling imprecatory psalms. David prays fervently for God to deliver him from his enemies and to punish them as they deserve. Paul applies the psalm to those individual Jews in Israel who were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah at the time when he writes this letter. 
In Acts 13.46, Paul argues that these people judge themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. In citing this psalm, Paul prays for three curses to fall on, the, on those enemies of the cross. Let their table become a snare, a trap, and a stumbling block. Their table probably stands for the Old Testament in general with its sacrifices on the altar and its eating of the sacrificial meals. Instead of allowing the law to lead them to Christ as God had intended, Galatians 3.24, their devotion to the law becomes a trap, a snare, and a stumbling block to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see uh, this curse is in accord with the stupor and bewilderment of verse 8 and the hardening of verse 7. Let their backs be bent forever. May their eyes become blind so that they have no insight and their backs bent like men who are continually groping in the dark. They are to be ever to be bent down with the weight of the burden which they have willfully taken on their backs. Paul's purpose in citing this psalm is found in the last phrase of verse 9 and a recompense to them. Recompense anatopodoma means requital, recompense, retribution. The unbelieving Jews are being punished for their lack of spiritual insight by being given over to blind trust in their own law. Fittingly, God grants them their fervent desire, their blinding was their own fault, their hardening is judicial, they got what they deserved. Probably there is some serious insight here into the nature of the curses called for uh, in these troubling imprecatory psalms and the nature of the judgments meted out by God in response. So in summary, God has not cast away his people. His people are the faithful Jews one by one. They constitute the faithful remnant in Israel or part of it anyway, as do the faithful Gentiles. The remnant among the nation of Israel are saved by grace, through faith, by obedience to the gospel. The unbelieving Jews have been hardened because they have rejected Jesus. I'm done.